May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Uh, This morning, we're going to move to the fourth miracle in the Gospel of John, and it comes to us in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there now. John chapter 6, we'll read the first 15 verses, and next week, we'll look at the miracle that immediately succeeds this miracle, and this is where Jesus walks on water. But today, we will read uh, probably one of the most well-known miracles of of Jesus, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And so uh, let's read that together in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. For Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here was a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place because it was on a mountain. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, had, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of God. Note how in this passage, John uses the word signs over and over and over. Because for John, these miracles are signs that point to something else. And that's been sort of the running line in this series. That these miracles Jesus is performing are one thing that lead to another. And I realized that uh, we're in our fourth week now. We're going to look at seven miracles. And then on Easter, we're going to look at the greatest miracle. But I realized that we never really defined the word miracle together. And that's important. I mean, uh, in some ways, we just assume we know what it means. But let's look at a dictionary's definition of the word miracle. A miracle is a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. This is from uh, a dictionary. A surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and therefore considered to be the work of some divine agency. 
Therefore, if that is what a miracle is, then, for instance, when we think about sports, okay, and we see a game and there's a last-second shot that wins the game, for us to call that a miracle is an overstatement, right? Because in reality, if a man is to catch a ball, a basketball, with less than a second on the clock, and his team is down by two, and he heaves it up in the air, and it goes through the rim, and they win by one with no time on the clock, when we call that a miracle, what we're really saying is it's just amazing. The fact that it's actually humanly possible, although the probability of it going in is very low, the probability of that team coming to win from behind is very low, That doesn't happen every day. But the fact that it is humanly possible means that it's really not a miracle, even though that's what we call it, right? Like the miracle on ice, the U.S. hockey team coming from behind and defeating the powerhouse Soviet national team in the the Winter Olympics. We call that a miracle on ice, but it's really no miracle. It was humanly possible. It's just that it doesn't happen often. And it defies our expectation. We should really just call those things amazing incidents. A miracle is something that can only happen through the intervention of a divine agency. There is no scientific or logical reason or explanation to explain and understand how a miracle could have happened. For instance, someone who is dead comes back to life. Medically, you cannot explain that. There is no logic behind that. Apparently, there was some divine intervention in that act. And what we are finding in these miracles through the Gospel of John is that there is no scientific or logical explanation to help us understand what Jesus actually did. When Jesus turned water to wine, Okay, that does not make sense. Water doesn't turn to wine. Water turns into to ice or gas, all right? Those are the only states that water could be. The only thing that can turn into wine is grape juice that is fermented. But Jesus took water. Then there was the healing of the official son. Jesus just said it. He didn't, he didn't apply any medication. He didn't say this is the kind of treatment that you need. He said he will be well, and he was that exact moment. And then last week, Jesus took a man who's never been able to walk his entire life. For 40 years, for four decades, this man has been lame. And Jesus says, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And today, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not including women and children, which is probably 20 to 25,000 people altogether total, with just five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. Is that a miracle? Well, It's interesting because uh, the way that we understand miracle is that it cannot be explained naturally or scientifically, but uh, it's interesting how even modern-day biblical scholars who don't believe in the divine have their own explanations as to how this miracle happened. Uh, The third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, was uh, a self-professing Christian. However, he did not believe in the miraculous. And so in his Bible, he actually omitted all of the miracles of Christ. And his Bible is a lot thinner than ours because there are a lot of miracles, right? 
But there are a lot of modern-day biblical scholars who also use reasoning and intellect to justify and to actually explain how these things happen. No, it wasn't a miracle. This is what happened. One scholar named Albert Schweitzer said, this is not a miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000. This is a miracle of contentment. See, what really happened is Jesus tore the bread up into all these tiny little pieces, kind of like what we do at communion on Sunday, right? We usually take two loaves here, and we feed about 300 people, and everybody takes their little, you know, crumb, or some people take bigger pieces. Who are you? (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. We have more than enough. Uh, You take your little piece, and, you know, it's usually right around lunchtime when we do communion. It's around 1130, 1145. And and you eat that piece of bread, and and you sit down, and you pray, and miraculously, you're, like, content. I mean, you're like, man, that was the best bread I've ever had. But that's because you were hungry, all right? It's just bread. It's from Stop and Shop, all right? But um, Albert Schweitzer says what happened is Jesus basically did, like, a mini communion. He fed all these people and gave them all a bite to eat of bread and fish. And when they took it in, it was a miracle of contentment. They were satisfied. They said, mm, that was, mm, that, that was good. I am satisfied. Preach, brother, preach, you know. But that's not what the passage tells us. John tells us that when they had all had enough to eat, not just a bite, not a morsel, not a snippet, And then how do you explain 12 basketfuls of leftovers if everybody just got a little bite and it was a miracle of contentment? It's like going to a a pizza parlor with your buddies and ordering a large pie and everybody having a slice and saying, uh, sir, can you wrap up the leftovers? And he looks and he goes, uh, did you guys eat? Yeah, we ate. And there's like 15 slices left over, but you only ordered one pie. How does that make any sense? Well, that's what John is telling us here. We started off with five loaves and two fish. Everybody had more than enough to eat, and then they collected 12 basketfuls of leftovers. So obviously, there was some sort of a miraculous intervention that multiplied the amount of food. Albert Schweitzer says, no, no, everybody just had a bite. It was a miracle of contentment. And yes, we do need to learn what it means to be content, especially as Christians. God has given us more than enough And we should not complain that we don't have enough. In fact, we should take what we have and be generous because we've been so richly blessed. And there is that miracle of of understanding that what we have is enough, but that's not what's going on here. Another biblical scholar named William Barclay said it was a miracle of generosity. What does he mean? Well, he says, you know, this wasn't a miracle. Jesus didn't literally feed these people with this boy's lunch. What happened is this. Everybody was hungry, and everybody had been traveling on the road following Jesus, and everybody was thinking the same thing. All right, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, you hungry, I'm hungry, when are we going to eat? And then everybody was sort of being selfish and grumbling and complaining, and then when this little boy took this lunch that he had and publicly stepped up to the plate and gave it to Jesus and said, Lord, may, you may have my lunch, everybody looked around, and they were inspired by this kid's generosity. And so underneath their clothes, they pulled out a turkey and a pot pie and some rolls and some spinach dip, and they all brought, oh, potluck time, you know, and they all started pulling out their food. And so it was a miracle of generosity. We saw this boy without an A. Oh, he gave all this food. And so now everybody's saying, well, if he gave his food, here, here goes my chicken wing, you know, and, and here goes my pita bread, and here goes my hummus. And everybody started to share. And so according to William Barclay, this was a miracle of generosity. One boy was generous, and then it was a chain of reaction. Everybody became generous, and all of a sudden we realized we all have more than enough food. If we all share, we can all eat. And they collected all the leftovers. 
That's where the food came from. If that was the case, you would think that that important little fact that everybody shared their food would be included in this gospel account. And if John had conveniently omitted it, that you know this document would not be authentic. It would not be integrous. Because there were 25,000 witnesses who would have said, John, you're lying. It wasn't a miracle. We were there. We all fed ourselves. This document would not have stood the test of time. So Albert Schweitzer's very logical, I mean, William Barclay's very logical conclusion that this is a miracle of, of generosity, though the miracle of generosity should be experienced, we should all be inspired by generosity, that's not what this passage is about. Jesus feeds between 20,000 25,000 people with one boy's lunch. This is the only miracle of Jesus apart from the resurrection that is actually recorded in all four of the Gospels. No other miracle is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only miracle. And you have to ask yourself, why this miracle? Why not the, 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 the water to wine? Or the walking on water? I mean, come on. I mean, that is amazing. Walking on water, how do you explain that? Was it just an iceberg floating on the Mediterranean Sea and he just looked to be, you know, walking on the water? I mean, I'm sure somebody's come up with that hypothesis as well. But why the feeding of the masses? Why is this in all four of the Gospels? Well, there's a very logical explanation for that. There were 25,000 witnesses, okay? All right, I mean, when Jesus healed the official son, maybe only, the only eyewitnesses were the son, because he was healed, the father, because he asked for the healing, and the household, the family and the servants, They're the only ones, so there's roughly, I don't know, 20 people who said, yeah, this happened. Or at the wedding at the Cana, at the, the wedding in Cana of Galilee, the water to wine, it was probably a small wedding, maybe two, 300 people at most. But this miracle had 25,000 eyewitnesses. And so everyone had heard of it, everyone had known of it. And so maybe that's the reason why it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. If you're writing a Gospel of Jesus, the story of his life, and you start interviewing people, this story is going to come up multiple times because it was seen by multiple eyeballs. That's one explanation why this miracle could appear four times in the Gospels. But, but, the, but the more important miracle is the, the more important reason is this. The reason why this miracle appears in all four of the Gospels, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6, the reason why this miracle appears four times is because this is the decisive event, the decisive miracle that establishes the identity of Jesus as the Christ. This is the decisive miracle that establishes the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. Read this miracle in all four Gospels, and you'll see this is the turning point where now people for the first time are boldly able to proclaim who Jesus is, not just the son of Joseph or the son of Mary, not just a a carpenter or a rabbi, but now we know and believe that you are the Messiah. Later on in John 6, Jesus begins to teach, I am the bread of life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and it tells us that people started turning away at this point. You've got all these people who are following Jesus because they want to see a show, they want to see a healing, they want to see a a miracle. But now Jesus starts to say really weird things. You've got to eat me if you want to follow me. And people are like, oh, I don't know about that. 
it was good while it lasted, but he's, <laughs> this popularity and fame is starting to get to him. So they, people start going home. John tells us this teaching was too hard. Some people say, that's heresy. He's speaking as if he's God. And so some people start going home. They check out. And so Jesus turns to his uh, uh, disciples, the apostles. (laughs) Disciples and apostles, the apostles, all right? That was coined here at Cornerstone Church, the apostles. And he said, all right, guys, I understand. If this teaching is too hard for you, now is a good time. If you're not on the same page with me, if you're not on board with what I'm about, you can leave. Jesus gives them an exit. If you want to go, you can go. And this is when Peter stands up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. Peter gets up. And he says, we believe and know, there is no shadow of a doubt in our minds that you are the Holy One of God. We will go to our graves for you. Everyone else had questions. They weren't sure. I I love it uh, in in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000, then he goes around and says, okay, guys, uh, who do people say that I am? And Peter stands up and says, we don't know and we don't care what they're saying, but I know that you are Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. See, this miracle is the decisive event that establishes the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah the Son of God. And that is why it is critical in all four of the gospel accounts that this miracle is recorded because this is in some ways a turning point. The tide is shifting, a momentum shift in his ministry. Before it was just a bunch of people who were naive that were following him. They were just uh, down on their luck and Jesus came and, and touched them and gave them health and wealth and prosperity. But now... It's not just the people who are naive. Now people are saying, no, no, we don't only know this, but we believe this, and we will give our lives to this cause and to this purpose. And that's what we find here in John 6. That's what we find here in John 6. And what John is trying to show us in the recording of this miracle, what he's showing us is two things. It's the same thing that we've been looking at for the last four weeks. The first thing, Jesus, John is showing us in this miracle that this is Jesus showing us who he is. And I'm going to explain that in more detail in just a second. But this miracle is an explanation. It's a sign of who he is and what he came to do. But the other thing John does here in John 6 is he's also showing us who we are. We are like these people, he says, like the great crowd of people following him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. We're like the crowd, honestly. We're looking for a Jesus who's going to change our lives, who's going to fix us, make us better, make us comfortable, help me pay my bills, help my kids behave, help me have a happy life and a happy home. If Jesus is in my life, everything should be good. This is the kind of people that followed him, and this is Many of us, we expect Jesus to make our lives better. But is that the biblical Jesus? 
Is that the Jesus that really walked to the earth? Did Jesus really come to make our lives better? John is showing us that we're like this people and that we are spiritually blind. We're following him because we are a generation that seeks after signs. And if I don't see any signs, forget it. I'm going to seek, to, I'm going to seek something else. I'm going to look for something else. If God doesn't help me, I'll help myself. And John is saying that we are this kind of people. I mean, look in John chapter 2. Jesus says, if you destroy the temple in three days, I'll raise it again. Now, we know what he's talking about, but you know what the people say? The people say, what's he talking about? Raise the temple in three days? It took us 46 years to build that temple, Jesus. But little did they know that Jesus was talking about his body. Kill me, and in three days I'll be raised again from the dead. But they were spiritually blind, so they couldn't see it. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a teacher, a well-respected man, comes to Jesus at night and says, Hey man, who are you? Who are you? And Jesus says, Unless you're born again, you have nothing to do with me. And Nicodemus goes, i got to go back into my mom's womb and come back out a second time? Little does he know Jesus is talking about something spiritual, and yet Nicodemus is spiritually blind. John chapter 4, okay? John is trying to make a point here. We're not at chapter 6 yet. John chapter 2, John chapter 3. Now John chapter 4, Jesus is sitting at a well, and there's a woman there who's scooping out water for her clay jar to take it back to her home. And Jesus says to her, hey, if you knew who I was, and you knew the water that I would give, that I would give the living water, you would never thirst. You would never thirst. And the woman looks at Jesus and goes, but you don't even have a bucket. It's because she's spiritually blind. Nicodemus is spiritually blind. The religious leaders are spiritually blind. And here, the people are spiritually blind. They are following him because they saw the signs. Are you following Jesus because of the signs? The benefits of being a Christian? Or are you following him because he is the Christ? The savior of your soul. The redeemer of your salvation. If you are not following him for that reason, then you are spiritually blind like Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the Jewish leaders, and these people here who will soon bail out on him because he starts talking about really weird things which are very just spiritual things. Who are you? That is the question. That is what John is trying to show us in this passage. Who Jesus is and what he came to do, but also, by the way, who we tend to be. We're like the crowd. Now, Jesus knew this. And so in 14, it says, after the people saw the miraculous sign, that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself, thinking in his mind, they still don't get it. Still don't understand. Wow. Still don't get it. But, But what does it mean? The people saw the sign and they started to, this is what they started to say. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Doesn't that kind of sound like they're on the right track, right? Like they're on the right track, like, okay, you know, he must be from God. He must be prophetic. He must have power. But, but Jesus withdraws. He's like, they, they still don't know. And why is that? 
Well, to understand what the people are thinking here and why they're thinking that he could be a prophet, you have to, well, you have to know the Bible. You have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. By the way, if you're reading the Bible and you're on a Bible reading plan and you're reading a little bit every day, you're probably right now in Deuteronomy somewhere, right? Amen? How many people? Deuteronomy? Oh, oh my. Okay. All right, I'm done. Let's pray. <laughs> so, uh, You would be in Deuteronomy if you're reading the Bible beginning in January through Genesis and you'd be almost done with the first five books. And if you're not there, you've got to get back on track. Come on, there's grace. Let's do this. Well, if you go to Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy is basically the last words of Moses before he dies, before his people, God's people, enter into the promised land. And he stands up on a mountain, just like Jesus is here. Moses is on a mountain, just like Jesus is on a mountain. He's teaching and preaching, just like Jesus is teaching and preaching. And Moses says, hey, one day a prophet like me will come from among you. And everybody held to that promise. Okay, one day, another prophet like Moses. Now, why is it important that we hold out for one like Moses? Why not Elijah or Daniel or or Micah? Why, why, Why Moses? Well, Moses was the one who delivered God's people from captivity into freedom into the promised land. Moses is also the prophet who did what? When the people were hungry and they were in the wilderness, he called upon God, and what did God provide through Moses? For 40 years, every single day, except for Sunday, Saturday. He provided manna and quail. Remember that? Remember that story? How every day they didn't have to work. They just woke up and, oh, manna, you know. Oh, manna, you know. Don't have to go to the market. Don't have to go shopping. Wake up. What do you want to have today? I don't know. Manna, you know. And they're eating manna every day for 40 years. And this is simply given to them by God. And so the credit goes to Moses. Moses fed the people for 40 years this heavenly bread. And so now, fast forward, I don't know, 4,000 years approximately, and you've got a Jewish rabbi among the people. He has some kind of authority. He's able to teach and preach, perform miracles. Everybody's hungry. He's on a mountain. He's teaching. The people are like, hey, we're getting hungry. And what does Jesus do? He feeds everyone miraculously. The same way Moses did back in Deuteronomy 18. And so now the people are starting to think, maybe this is the prophet who is to come into the world. I mean, these people were holding on to this promise for thousands of years. Think about the Jewish people, how faithfully they've been waiting, eagerly expecting a Messiah to come and to take over the Roman Empire and to bring deliverance in a new reign, in a new kingdom. For God's people, for all of God's people. And this is a story, a tradition that they've been telling for generation after generation after generation. And now, finally, there's a guy who's starting to live up to the task, live up to the building, and it's Jesus. And so they're beginning to think that he is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus says, well, they're going to try to make me king by force. So he withdraws. Because again, Jesus sees into their hearts and he recognizes their spiritual blindness and he realizes that even though the people have the right expectation, it's in the wrong way. Yeah, when God comes back, yeah, he will feed all of his people. 
Moses fed God's people every day for 40 years. Moses gave the people bread to sustain their lives. But what Jesus is about to say is, I'm not here to give you bread. I am the bread. And I'm not here to give you bread that will sustain your life. I am here to be the bread that gives you life. That's what Jesus is saying here in this miracle. This is the sign. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven because he knew exactly what they were thinking about. But it was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's me. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am that bread that has come down from heaven to give you life. And then Jesus goes on to say, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And at this time, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that came from heaven. They're starting to grumble. They're starting to argue. Hold on. How dare he say this? How could he have the audacity to speak these things? So Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Every time we come up to the table on Communion Sunday and we take a piece of that bread, it is a visible, tangible, tactile, edible reminder of what Jesus has done for us. He has given us himself. And that bread is not meant to nourish us physically, although it can and it does. That bread, which represents his body, is meant to nourish us spiritually. Because John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And Jesus is that word. And when we are nourished by the word, we are nourished on the bread of life, the body of Christ. Do you see what he's doing here? These people were following Jesus because they thought if we hang out with this guy, he will make our lives easier. When we're sick, all we got to do is go to him and he will heal us. When we're hungry, all we got to do is go to him and he'll feed us. When we lose our jobs, all we got to do is go to him and he'll give us something to do. When somebody in our family dies and we're hurt, then he will give us assurance that they're okay and he'll comfort us and make us feel better. These people were following Jesus because they thought that if they hung out with him, he would make their lives better. And they were spiritually blind all along. They didn't realize he came to make their lives better. He came to make their lives holy by dying for their sins. And the only proper response to show that you are not spiritually blind and that you understand that Jesus is the bread of life is to live a life of holiness. Because if your life never changes after you've met Jesus, you're just one of the people looking for a sign. You're just somebody waiting for another miracle to happen to make your life better or easier. 
But if your life begins to change, slowly but surely, if your life begins to change, it is evidence that your eyes have been opened and you are no longer blind. And that Jesus did not come to give bread, but to be the bread that would give us eternal life. That is what this miracle is all about. Do you see it? Or better yet, do you believe it? That this is who Jesus is and what he came to do. If you see it and you believe it, your life should change. And if it doesn't, you're still in the crowd. You're still in the crowd. And that's okay. There's time. And God's grace is sufficient. But let us stop seeking signs and blessings in and of themselves. But let's start seeking Christ. I want to close with two quick things. Um, It's funny because, you know, Jesus is on the mountainside and, I mean, he knows that there are all these people following him and wanting to hear his teaching. And there's like 20, 25,000 people. And he knows it's time to eat and he knows they haven't eaten in a long time. And so he goes to Philip and he goes, Philip, um, there's all these people. What are we going to do? Now, in my mind, I'm reading this and it took me a while to, to, to catch on to this, you know, We read these things all the time and we take it for granted. But then I start to put myself in Philip's shoes. Like, what if I was Philip? What if I was one of the disciples? And Jesus came to me. I would be like, why are you picking on me, Jesus? All right? I mean, you got all these people. Why are you asking me how are we going to feed these people? Like, am I the chef? You know, am I the executive chef of your entourage? I mean, am I, like, how am I, you know, why are you asking me? I don't know. And the reason why he asked Philip is because actually they were in Philip's region, in Philip's hometown. And so maybe, I don't know, this is what a modern scholar would say, Jesus is picking on Philip because he knew where all the resources were. He knew where the corner market was. He knew where the butcher was, where the bakery was. And so Philip could just say, hey, you go, you know, go, 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 and you get food, food, quick, quick, quick. And he could provide for the people instantly. But remember, John tells us that he only asked Philip to test him. It was a test. So what is Philip's response? Does he pass the test? Well, this is what Philip says. Eight months' wages would not be enough food, not be enough money to feed everybody a bite. All right, now talk about precise mathematics, okay? He looks at the people, 20,000 people. He pulls out his abacus, and he starts moving the beads around. He says, okay, it would take eight months' wages to give everybody precisely one bite. (laughs) 16 months' wages, two bites. 32 months wages, three bites. And, or, it goes on and on and on, four bites, right? Like, he's calculating. He is expecting something logical and reasonable to happen. And that's oftentimes how we operate, isn't it? We expect to discern the will of God by always being so practical and there's no room for faith. Sometimes you just need faith. And I'm not saying... Naive. I'm not saying, you know, you know, mindless. But sometimes we try and we, you know, I want to go this way, God. And, and it seems like God keeps closing the door. So we logically say, okay, maybe there's a closed door. I'll go this way. And so we just assume that that's the way to go. But what if maybe God is saying, you need to have faith. You need to overcome. If that's what I'm putting on your heart, on your life, you need to overcome and have faith. But like Philip, we calculate, okay, well, since the answer is no, red light. Open door, green light, okay, we go in. And sometimes that's how God works, but what I'm saying here today is, sometimes God tests us too, just like he tested Philip. And he wants to test your faith. Not your reasoning ability, 
Not your ability to say, okay, this is how much money I have, this is what I need to live, and so this is what I can live without and give. I mean, sometimes we need to live that way, but God is saying, hey, live by faith. And the other quick thing I want to add is this. And this is my favorite character of the whole story, so I save him for last. He doesn't even have a name. He's referred to as the boy. The boy in the story. Do you remember the boy? Without the boy, no one eats. Because this is the boy who brings five barley loaves. Barley loaves means that he was probably a poor, poor kid. Because barley was the cheapest type of grain that you could turn into bread. It was like going to the market and getting the 79-cent loaf of bread instead of the $3.99, like, nine-grain, multi-grain, you know, like, antioxidant, gluten-free, night, you know, tree-hugger bread. I mean, you know, he was the one that would give him Actually, it wasn't even the 79-cent bread. It was the 45-cent bread that was, like, 10 days old. You know, the one that they put on that car, you know, 10 days old bread or whatever, and you buy that bread, it's already... That's what barley bread was like for these people. It was the cheapest bread. And so it, it meant that this boy was... poor. He didn't have a name, so we'll never be able to go down in history saying, yeah, you know, that kid, what was his name again? I don't know, but it inspired me. But this boy, poor, no name, a kid, not even an adult, gives Jesus his lunch that day. And Jesus takes his lunch and he feeds everybody. And what I'm saying is this. He gave all that he had. It wasn't much, but it was everything. It wasn't a whole lot. But it was all that he had. And that was enough for Jesus to take it, to use it, and to bless people with it. And right now we're trying to pledge gifts for the homeless community in Boston. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I don't have much to give. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many towels you have or don't have. It doesn't matter how much money you have or you don't have. It doesn't matter how much soap you can buy or you can't buy. If it's a bar of soap and that's all you can do, that's fine. I don't think Jesus cares about how many loaves of bread and how many fish you can provide. I think the only thing Jesus is looking at is your heart. And this boy, he didn't say, okay, I've got two fish here. You can have one. I've got five loaves of bread. You can have, well, you're bigger than me, so I'll let you have three and I'll take two. That's not what the boy did. He gave it, he gave everything. And, and, You know, maybe I'm reading too much into this story, but when I put myself in his shoes, I feel ashamed. Because I think most of the time, I withhold. And sometimes I think, I, I get down on myself, I don't have much to give. And so I don't give anything. Or I only give a little bit. This boy gave it all. What do you have that was not given to you as a gift? This boy knew that even his lunch was a gift. And most likely he knew who Jesus was. So he gave it to him. Do you know who he is? Because if you do, you'll give, just like this boy did. Might not be much, but it doesn't matter how much, how little. It's your heart. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for this uh, teaching. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for showing us that you sent your son to be the bread of life, the lover of our soul. Lord, that if we believe, if we trust, if we have faith in your son, Jesus, that he can save us from our sins and he can give us 
not just a day of sustenance, not just a week of sustenance, not just 40 years of sustenance, but an eternity of sustenance at the grand table of your kingdom. And as we look back over the weeks and we put these miracles together, Lord, we begin to see who you are. But Lord, we also begin to see what you came to do and therefore what our response should be. It's not to just sit back and and be in awe of your power, although that is one thing we do. It is not to just sit back and go along for the ride, even though that is sometimes what we do. Lord, you are calling us to faithful obedience. to trust you, to obey you, to love you. You heal us to make us holy. You feed us to give us life. Not just physical life, but eternal life, the spiritual life. And so, Lord, as we reflect upon your word and as we continue to look ahead to the miracles that have yet to happen in the Gospel of John, but, Lord, more importantly, more importantly, as we look ahead to Easter, as we look ahead to the miracle where you conquered sin, death, and destruction. Lord, may our hearts be overwhelmed with your power, with your authority, with your goodness, with your love. Lord, it is for these reasons why we worship you, why we are here today, and why we follow you. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to believe, help us to follow, feed us today and every day. We pray this, Lord God, in Jesus' name, amen.